At Operation Tango Romeo, we are on a mission to save lives and relieve pain by making help for PTS injuries easily accessible with a vision of a world where the path to recovery is clear. I am your OPSO, Mark Meinke, and this is Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast. And today on the show, we have Dion Joseph, otherwise known as the Angel of Skid Row. He is a law enforcement consultant, a 25-year veteran of the LAPD, author of Stepping Across the Line, a Skid Row Cop Story. You might have seen him on Steve Harvey a few years ago, which was a pretty cool episode, actually. But more recently, he's been thrust back into the spotlight uh, from an open letter that he penned to LeBron James, which received international attention. Thanks for being here, man. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me, sir. I'm uh, so glad to have you. Uh, there's, We've got a lot of ground to cover today. Policing has never been easy. It's always been a thankless job, always. And yes. uh, you're doing the hard stuff and helping people and saving lives, but all people see is the other stuff. And... Um, and cops never have had a fair shake, but has it been even worse in the last two or three years? Yeah, I think I'd say this is the worst I've seen it as far as the environment for law enforcement officers, and we all know the reason why. Right now, the several factors going against us are a right now the negative. Ah, guys, I'm trying to be fair to the media, but unfortunately, journalists who has turned who have turned into activists themselves, they've bought into the movement and they want to support the movement. So of course, they're going to try to highlight the negative. Uh, exception of our profession over the honorable rule. Uh, social media, of course, you have some social media troll in his mom's basement switching from porn to cop hate videos. And when he's done taking a puff, he uh, goes back to cop hating videos and he edits them and puts his own special captions on it and sends it out to millions of people around the world. Uh, internet attorneys, uh, now uh, politicians who basically are throwing us all under the bus. They basically allowed us to be abused and assaulted and and make us the scapegoat for all of their failed policies and now we have to re- continue to respond to their systemic uh, uh failures and poor decision making and now what we're seeing on college and high school campuses as the the uh, demagoguery of policing continues as now even in the junior high schools and elementary schools they're showing a picture of a slave catcher putting his knee on the neck of a slave and then they put a picture of Derek Chauvin putting his knee on the neck of George Floyd and the next thing you know, the brainwashing continues. Or what I saw one day is where they put a picture of a slave catcher badge next to my badge and say, oh, this is this is the correlation between policing because they have the word patrol in it. And the brainwashing is so strong. And unfortunately, uh, you know, I don't see us fixing it on a macro level nationwide because, like I said, it's too strong. But on a micro level, there are things we can do in our own divisions, in our own sectors to try to build those relationships, to try to take it back one area at a time, but it's going to be very difficult. This is the worst we've had it. Has the media made policing more dangerous? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, when you just focus on the negative exception and all you do is show police videos or a montage of, uh, of, of a couple of dozen police videos that you keep showing over and over again to the public, it's going to create, unfortunately, fight or flight primers in the minds of people that we contact, especially people of color, where now, I would say just four years ago, uh, a, tra- a seven-minute traffic stop with a person of color can now turn into 15, 20 minutes of, I don't trust you, I'm scared of you, F you, get your supervisor, I'm not signing a ticket, okay, now you got to go to jail, and now I'm accused of being a racist who put you in jail for a taillight. Um, and and it's, it's just really crazy these days. The media is making it worse. And what also is making it worse is they're not giving us a chance. The other side of completely taking the microphone and silenced us to where they're the only narrative that is allowed to be heard. And of course, when that happens, when you silence the other side, all reason and objectivity goes out the window. And now, you know, we're basically the Gestapo to the, to the world. Being a person of color yourself and being a cop, it's got to be a little extra frustrating when you hear things that you just know are not true. What are some of the top things that um, you know from your experience are simply not true, but are believed very strongly? That all cops are pretty much engaged in systemic racism against people of color. 
this is a completely false narrative. Uh, like you have, the, uh, the, you have them repeating the same mantras. You know, no matter how we evolve or change, they have to keep saying the catchphrase. Things haven't changed to continue to get what they want. We're experiencing that right now, even where I work, where you know, shootings are down. You know, we're we're doing the best we can to be a little bit more uh, user friendly to the community. Uh, but still, when you put the microphone in their face, things haven't changed. And we're still mowing people down. Uh, when the truth of the matter is, no, we are not engaged in systemic racism. The laws I enforce aren't inherently racist. The policies that we uh, abide by or work under are not inherently racist. The problem comes when the negative exception of our profession steps beyond policy and the law and engages in things that sell our badge that we have to suffer the fallout from long after they're gone. So the policies don't need to change. Uh, what needs to, what does need to improve is us weeding out the negative exception, which many departments are trying to do, but we're not looking for the media attention or a pat on the back for doing it. You know, I myself, though I know for a fact the vast majority of police officers, whether they're white, black, Hispanic, gay, straight, are decent human beings doing a tough job. I know there's a negative exception. I've had to report two of those and I didn't lose a drop of sleep doing it, but those two incidents didn't make me say, oh my God, policing is a rolling dumpster fire in a dry forest. I need to find another profession. That's absolutely uh, false. Another rumor, or not rumor, or another myth that they put out there that oh, I get from my own community is how can you work with those white cops? <laughs> you know, uh, why are all these white cops getting into shootings with uh, black people? And I said, well, you only believe that because the media is only showing those shootings. I'll never forget, I was uh, mentoring some uh, teenagers at a high school and they all had the same questions. Why are you guys shooting kids? Why are white cops shooting kids? And why are police shooting black people, only black people? I said, well, that's the only thing being shown to you. Let me show you something. So I went to YouTube and I punched in, uh, and this is about several years ago before they changed it to where now it's harder to find, uh, unarmed white people killed by police. And I found about 20 videos really easily. Uh, and I showed them these videos and some of them justified controversial, but justified, and others were not justified. And I said, look at this video right here. It only has 3,000 views. This one only has 60,000 views. It was only in the news for two days. Why do you think that happened? And the kids didn't have an answer. Why well, I had the answer for them. I said, because white lives don't push agenda. Black lives are exploitable. We just had a technical director from one of the major news networks admit that he's trying to help BLM. So of course, they're going to highlight the black shootings over the white ones. You know, it doesn't matter what data you give them. You can, I, I can tell these kids, hey, consistently over the last few years, we've shot twice as many whites than black, but then you'll have some smart guy in the back, well, what about the ratios and proportionalities? Uh, you know, there's more white people than black people. So that's a mute point. And I'm gonna explain why that's a mute point. Because across this country, when law enforcement officers hit clear and go out into the streets and respond to these calls or get that call, we have no idea who we're gonna contact or what's going to happen, what the outcomes are. So we're not being counting. I'm not calling Ohio and saying, hey, we shot two whites. Uh, go ahead and get me two blacks over there so we can make it look even. But I'm telling you, when I tell you people really think this stuff, they think we just got this hive mindset and we're programmed to just go out there and kill people of color and let's just kill a couple of white guys and make everybody happy. It's not like that. We don't know what to expect when we go out there. So basically, by the numbers, the biggest threat to law enforcement across the nation is, unfortunately, uh, realist, realistically, whites. So, uh, but they don't want to believe that. They don't want to believe that. They only believe what's been fed. Uh, what other myths that I, I keep hearing? That I'm a sellout, I'm an Uncle Tom, I hate my own people. Uh, but, that, so are, you, are you getting that much, Dion? Like it's an occasional thing when people call you an Uncle Tom, which is actually, if they knew their history, that's not the right insult. No, it's not. It's actually a compliment. But, you know, <laughs> but once again, they got they got the woke version of the Uncle Tom Sturge story. Yeah. But anyway, uh, uh, not in the community I serve. I've earned their respect. And once again, the community I serve is 80% African-American. I've saved more African-Americans than any of my detractors did. In fact, you know, most of them, when something happens to an African-American, they turn and look the other way, walk away. And I don't I didn't see anything. I didn't I didn't hear anything, you know, but when I step outside of my area, that's when I get these looks from, you know, these young kind of woke kids, you know, who are, who think they know everything and has only been on the planet for 15 minutes and don't want to even know the other side or social media is where I get it a lot, where I'll have uh, the negative exception of my own community who will troll me. And I don't mind them as much because I understand their mentality because I was them. When I was a young man, 
I was brainwashed and guided to the thought that police were inherently evil as well. So I get them. So what I do is if I can't reach them, I just block, God bless you, brother, and delete, move on. What bothers me more than anything else is when I get these woke, progressive type uh, white folks. I'm not, I'm, talking, I'm not talking about all white folks. Somebody got mad at me the other day. <laughs> I love most white folks. <laughs> but, but when these woke white folks get on and tell me that I forget what it is to be black, how could you be a police officer and be black? You need to quit your job right now uh, so you can get back in good graces with your people. And that's, white people tell you, telling you that you're not black enough. Yes. And let me tell you why that angers me so much. My great grandfather. <laughs> it angers me and I'm white. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. My great grandfather, uh, Levi, he was a six foot eight, 32 year old man who actually was one of the first black people in the Jim Crow South to own a little bit of land in his own business. And what happened was uh, one day, one of his employees was assaulted by a bunch of white people. And uh, that was just the times of back then. The racism was tangible, palpable. You could feel it. It was in the air. So uh, my great granddaddy didn't take things lying down. He was afraid of no man. So he went and found the guys and beat the crap. He beat the dog crap out of all of them. And, uh, and that was it. He walked away. Hey, one, one, let's leave it alone. They didn't want to leave it alone. So one day my great grandfather is walking uh, on a sidewalk. And uh, a 16 year old white kid who was associated of, uh, an associate of those uh, people that my grandfather uh, took on, he sees my great grandfather walking on the sidewalk. And back, what happened back in those days, if you saw a white person walking on the sidewalk and you were black, you had to walk into the street. My great grandfather did not want to do that. My great grandfather was like, I'm a grown ass man. I'm not doing that for no 16 year old white kid. Yeah. The kid jumped up with a pistol, hit my great grandfather in the head and blew his brains out. And to add insult to injury, that 16-year-old went on to become the sheriff of the town <laughs> where he murdered my great-grandfather. So what I felt right there was generational deja vu when these progressive whites get on and try to tell me what it is to be black and what I should be doing. You know, I thank them for not shooting me in the head, but that is the most racist, condescending thing that you could ever do to a man. You've never been in my shoes. I didn't stop being black or a proud African-American when I put my uniform on, but I'm not going to be... Uh, stop being proud to be a police officer because I'm proud of the things that I've done. I'm proud of the vast majority of the men and women that I work with. I know more cops than you. That's what I tell them all the time. You can't know more cops than me. You can't. The only time you know a cop is when you see something on the news and you want to go yell at them when they're on the line, you know, like a coward because you know their uniform protects them from doing what you get getting what you deserve for talking crap about them while they're on the line protecting your First Amendment right to be an asshole. And I'm sorry about that. I just, I'm very passionate about it. But oh, hey, well, you, can, you, can, you can drop as many colorful words as you want on this show. That's, that's what I love about this. I don't got no CRTC uh, crawling up my butt. So, <laughs> so we're good, man. Be, be yourself. Uh, I have sort of a longer uh, question and more philosophical for you. When I was um, in the war in Croatia, there was a, a genocide back in 94. Um, when things were hard, which was the first three months, I mean, hard, we were working 36 hours straight, doing hard labor, filling sandbags, plus doing the patrols, getting shot at bombs going off. And it was legit hard. But once all those sandbags were full, uh, the, uh, houses were fortified, the bunkers were built, the bomb shelters were good to go. Um, and the shooting settled down a little bit because they, they realized, oh, it's dope. Best for those Canadians. They're, they're nuts. And um, uh, once it started to settle down and it got easy and we actually had bugger all to do, the complaining started. When it was harder than hell, I mean, ugly hard, nobody complained about anything. But as soon as it started gotten easier, all the complaining and the moaning would start. And I noticed it then when I was 24 years old, I was like, huh, look at that. And, um, and then I've noticed it again in my life again and again. Well, Jim Crow laws and whatnot are not that long ago. They're like 70 years ago. You know, right. um, I'm 51 years old. So it's a little bit before my life, to, before I was born, uh, but still pretty damn fresh. Like our, our parents and grandparents, very fresh. Right, right. And um, but, and then, I mean, that's legit, holy shit, racism. Like, disgusting, right. wow. You know, like, how could it, how were we ever there? It's tough to imagine. Yeah, exactly. At, at what point in that timeline would you say that, because uh, it was systemically racist, I think there's no question. Like, of course it was. It was by law racist. 
But at, at what point did you think that there's, we, we got past that and, and things actually got legit better, civil rights movement. And I know it's a sliding scale and this, you can't really put a pin on a year. It's more of a decade. But when did things start getting better? And when do you think that the idea of systemic racism, racism lost its teeth as far as being a, a good argument? Well, it's, it's a question that's kind of hard to answer. What I can say is you never could erase racism because racism is a human trait. You know, it's going to always exist. Now, maybe one group might be more, do more damage with it because of the numbers, the sheer numbers that they have. But I would say that that barrier was starting to break around the late 60s and 70s when the African-American community was starting to move into the upper class, middle class. And, and keep in mind, during those times, even though time, times were hard, uh, Jim Crow, and uh, we were still dealing with the aftermath of Jim Crow, 70% of black families had fathers in the home. And, and these fathers were masters of various crafts. So, you know, even if they had a high school degree, a high school education, they didn't have an education. They were still feeding their families and putting things together and making things better for their children. And then what happened was the, the welfare, uh, 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 the institutionalized uh, welfare system, which, of course, it affected everybody. It, it wasn't just black people that got on welfare. But there's a saying that when America catches a cold, the African-American community catches the flu. And Lyndon B. Johnson created it, and when he created it, he says, I'm gonna have these N-words voting for us for the next 200 years with this bill. And what happened was a lot of black fathers weren't even allowed to be in their homes because if they were there, then, oh, the breadwinner's here, you're gonna lose your money for your children. So what that ended up creating was a shaky foundation for children uh, and a lot of uh, African-Americans who now were becoming reliant completely on the system to take care of their needs. Uh, and this continued until about the uh, 80s when I was in school. I talked to a young lady and uh, when we were talking about, we were getting ready for, to graduate from high school, I said, what are you going to do with yourself when you get out of school? Because she already had two kids. She said, I'm going to have two more kids. <laughs> the state's going to give me more money. So that was ingrained into us. So that was a part of you know, a different kind of systemic racism, the kind of systemic racism that, that engages in patronization of the It just changed his face. It went from being overt to yeah. uh, to now it's covert. It's like, oh, yeah. no, we're being good here. We're, we're being the nice people. But the, but these so, so-called nice actions are actually deeply, deeply racist. Mm -hmm. Now, as far as the systemic ending, I would say... Somewhere, I would say around the 80s, you know, uh, yeah. you know, because that was a time where I saw a lot of African-American men starting businesses, you know, uh, you know, say what you want about Reagan. A lot of people are anti-Reagan and anti I See, I'm not really left or right. I'm not Republican or Democrat, but yeah. I call it as I see it. I remember the 1980s and in spite of dealing with the horrors of the crack epidemic exploding, which, which, which was the second nail on the coffin, uh, somewhat on the black community, and we still survived that. But I saw my father become a successful businessman because it just wasn't about the color of your skin for the most part it was your drive your will and how much money you could make me <laughs> so so my dad went on to become a successful businessman and it wasn't to say that he didn't have some people uh you know some white folks trying to stop him inspectors uh trying to uh, disapprove every one of his projects but he was able to push back and he never made excuses he fought through that so i would say around the 80s is when the the hard concepts of systemic racism was starting to release its grip to a degree because it wasn't about black or white to a degree it was about green uh the only thing that was holding us back around that time once again was the crack epidemic which started in the early 80s and completely destroyed a lot of uh, inner city communities and once again it's not to say that uh, beverly hills didn't have a crack problem but the difference between beverly hills and long beach compton watts la is most of those people in those cities were already on the lower end of economic uh, uh ladder so when they did it, their trip and fall down to places like Skid Row or the street and losing everything was a little bit shorter than their more affluent counterparts who were able to have a kind of a financial buffer to hide their addiction or go to places to kind of fix them up and patch them up until they fell off the wagon again. Most of these folks didn't have that. So I believe that was kind of a form of systemic racism, uh, you know, to a degree. But in the end, people had a choice to do it or not. You know, and a lot of people should made the choice to smoke crack, sell crack, and uh, be Judas's in their own community, and really further uh, the drug trade there, which actually hurt us. So I would say around the '80s, I would say that 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 hard ideal concept of systemic racism was starting to lose its grip. And uh, you know, my father taught me this, 
he said, uh, I remember one time I came home from school and I had joined an activist group. I was woke before the term woke came. <laughs> it was, was birth, sir. Yeah, Roger so, so I joined this group and the group was initially about um, celebrating history about black people beyond slavery because we were tired of the focus always being on slavery and Jim Crow and we were tired of watching Roots all the time and you know showing pictures of slave and slaves. We just wanted to see ourselves in a different light and we discovered a great history about Africa. Then the leadership changed. It went from that to now we had a new leader who was from the Nation of Islam. And in his whole thing was white people were the devil, police are out to get you, police are slave catchers. And he even almost had some of us believing that white folks were egg born. It was crazy. I'm like, wait, I just watched National Geographic. That's <laughs> they're born the same way we are. <laughs> but he was really just saying this stuff over and over again until a lot of us started to believe it. And I'll never forget. Uh, one day uh, we were uh, sitting at a table at our weekly brainwashing session and uh, he started saying, hey, let's talk about uh, police brutality and, and, and because I know you guys are getting stopped and harassed by the police all the time. And I'm sitting here like looking at my guys like, I'm sorry, I haven't been harassed by the police. But I didn't want to say it out loud. Yeah. So we all started telling stories. And and you know how you heard of toppers, right? One guy tells a story, you got to come up with a topper. Oh, every, yeah. guy had, every guy had a topper and I'm sitting here like, damn, I got to come up with my own topper and I've never been harassed by police. <laughs> so I, I, I just made up some crap and then it got to my friend next to me. And uh, they asked him, what, ha what happened to you, brother? And he says, uh, every time I step outside my house, the police harass me. And I looked at him, I was like, fool, your mama don't even let you out the house. You're a Jehovah Witness. I can't even get you to come outside the house and play basketball with me, right? <laughs> and so that's, when I saw that, that's when I realized what was happening to me. I was being indoctrinated and I severed myself with them, but there was a cost to being with them because they, did, they said the white man's math was evil. Yeah, two plus two was the white man's math. Uh, uh, history was evil, science was evil, everything was the white man's uh, education. I brought, I was the first person in my family to bring home three Fs, the first person in my household. And I, I my, my brothers and sisters were smart as whips, right? So I came home and I told my mother and my mother broke down and cried. That was the first time my mother, a tough woman, ever cried. And that, when you see your mom cry, it just breaks your spirit. Yeah. So she said, she said the words that no kid wants to hear, wait till your father gets home. And I was like, oh, <laughs> so, so, so I'm sitting in my room waiting, waiting to hear his Cadillac pull up in the driveway. And I hear those big keys trying to unlock the door. And I'm like, I'm going to die. And then I look out the keyhole and I see my dad talking to my mom and all I hear is, I just got off work. I don't need to hear this shit. <laughs> and he slams his keys and he tells me to come out of the room and he gets nose to nose to me with his fist balled up and he can barely talk. He's so angry and hurt. Mm. And he just puts his finger in my face and says, get your ass in the room. I'll talk to you when I calm down. And thankful, I, I, that's why I'm forever grateful to Magic Johnson. They were playing the Houston Rockets that day and they kicked their butts. So the Magic Johnson would love, thank you for winning that game because when, I, <laughs> when my dad came in the room, he was a little bit more calm and cool. Yeah. So he sat down next to me. And when I looked in my dad's eyes, there were tears. And I was like, Dad, are you crying? And he said, son, I don't know who you're hanging around with. And I I've been listening to you talk. I said, but you have no idea what real racism is, son. And this is the first time my dad actually sat down and broke down what he went through growing up in the Jim Crow South. And he told me the story of my grandfather and the abuse that he took. And then he said, son, why have, why have you never heard me mention these things to you? I said, I don't know, dad. I don't know. He goes, because I didn't want to pass my scars on to you. Now, if I can become successful and your uncles can be successful and come here and work and not make excuses in, in, in the United States of America, what's stopping you? You're, you're growing up in an era where you can be anything you want. Son, before you joined that group, you said you wanted to be a scientist. You said you wanted to be a great writer. And you believed it, didn't you? I said, yeah, dad, I did. And you just brought me home three Fs. He says, don't you let my name down. Don't you let our family down. You come from a family of fighters and we don't make excuses. And that changed the trajectory of my life right there. I didn't go through what my dad's going through. These crying kids right now coming out of college, they didn't go through what I went through. They act like they went through 400 years of oppression just from two years of grad school. And it's really unfortunate. So I believe there's a new form of systemic racism and that systemic racism is to uh, fear monger and keep African-Americans feeling uh, perpetually as if they're on a plantation. And, 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 and that's the new systemic racism. And now they're teaching it in schools. Now we have critical race theory. 
And now all we have is a bunch of angry, resentful, young African-Americans who can be anything they want. And also the other side where we have a bunch of guilt, uh, white folks who are feeling guilty about who they are and the skin they're in. And now we just have a more dressed up form of racism uh, uh, infecting our politics, infecting our schools, and even infecting police work. And now from what I'm hearing, the military. And that's a dangerous place for our country to be when we uh, accept a, uh, a socially acceptable form of racism, uh, so to speak. You know, when um, when you agreed to be on the show, I had no plans whatsoever to to be getting into a race conversation, but it just kind of went there because it, it's I guess it's sort of tough to separate the challenge of policing uh, in today's world and racism, um, or or the topic of it, or the accusations of it. Uh, it's really tough to to separate those and it's really unfortunate when you talk about your grandfather oh my god and and other experiences of your family when you hear somebody throwing out uh the term racist or white supremacist which i've been accused of twice on social media not so long ago like where, what? Where did that come yeah. from? Yeah, uh, yeah. But people throw it out there so easily and so casually, you know. Yeah, it's, um, it's called re- it's called redefine. It's called revisionism, and they're redefining everything. The real uh, uh, definition of racism is to believe your your race is superior to everyone else. But not only that, you have to add in the factor that you use that sense of superiority to hurt somebody who's not you. And if you haven't done that, sir. You are not a white white supremacist. Now we all have biases, and, and I'm not going to sit here and pretend that racism isn't a factor. Yeah, I've been. Sure it is. I've, I've had racism happen to me even as an adult, but I'm not saying that based on that one contact with one idiot that I'm going to paint a whole race of people, uh, you know, as white supremacists based on that because I know far too many decent people who are white, Hispanic of all races who are really good people, and they may have their biases. We all do. But to go extreme and call you or anybody else a white supremacist without any proof and your guilt, your, the main factor of your guilt is just your skin color, it's just that you're white. That is dangerous. I didn't like it when it happened to me as a young African-American male when I'm walking in through the mall or walking into an elevator and some white lady clutches her purse. And I don't want it happening to you or anyone else. I think it's evil. I think it's wrong, no matter what the intention is. Oh, it's right up there with, uh, at least from my perspective, it's right up there from uh, meeting somebody for the first time, taking a tiny bit of evidence and saying, oh my God, you're a pedophile. What? (laughs) You know, it's a big claim. And unfortunately, uh, people throwing it out there uh, casually is uh, a massive slap in the face and disservice from those that have actually suffered it. Right. And, uh, and if they can't if they can't get you for being an actual racist because they don't have the proof, well, they say you benefit from a system of racism, therefore you're a racist by default. So it's this whole catch-22 argument where you're basically damned if you do, damned if you don't, and if you don't bow down and kiss my boot for what your ancestors did to me, then <laughs> then you are a part of the problem. And this is where we're in a dangerous place in the United States of America today. I want to see racism end, but doing it in this way only creates another form or socially socially acceptable form of racism and here's going to be the follow fallout of that in a few short years some some of these folks on the other side who are getting that tag are going to get tired of it and, and you, gonna create every, and, 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 and it's going to it's going to be cyclical it's going to be cyclical every good story has a strong protagonist and a strong antagonist and everybody always sees themselves as the protagonist right and uh when your life is easy and this gets on to my story of croatia when your life gets easy People uh, who see themselves as that strong pro- uh, protagonist, the, the hero of the story, they need to find an antagonist. They need to find a villain. And if there's really not a lot of villainy going around, you will find it. And, and everything is relevant to, to a person's circumstance, when, like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Uh, when, when all your shit is sorted out and everything's really good, well, where's my antagonist now? Where's my fight? And they'll, yeah. they'll make one up. Yeah. Well, Adolf Hitler did it. The most evil man, arguably, arguably the most evil man in the 20th century was Adolf Hitler. And uh, his movement needed a villain. And the villain he chose, you know, based on being failed in college by his art teacher, were, were the Jews. And he got the brown shirts to do kind of what Antifa is doing. And, uh, and some members of uh, BLM, not all, but some are, are doing right now. And if you, you, what you do is you tell a lie. For the layman, you keep it simple. And you repeat it over and over again until everybody believes it. 
And of course, his lie on the Jews back then was all Jews are inferior, Germans are superior, Jews are trying to take over our jobs and everything else like that. And you keep that simple to the layman who's been struggling because he knew, he understood. And me saying this is not giving Adolf Hitler a compliment. It's just me being honest. He was the most evil man. He's in hell where he belongs. And I'm happy about that. But he was also a brilliant man. He was a smart strategist, and he recognized that it's easily easier to bring people together for any cause, whether it's noble or not, using hate than it is to bring people together using love. And if you want to know how challenging it is to bring people together in love, objectivity, and understanding, ask Dr. Martin Luther King. You can't. Someone blew his brains out on a balcony in Memphis. Uh, that's a challenge. That's a challenge. And they're using today that same tactic, that, and it works. It works. You find your villain. And, and, and you hyper-focus on them and you tell lies on them or, some, or you tell truths or embellish that truth a little bit and you just tell it to the layman. You keep it simple. Hands up, don't shoot. Hands up, don't shoot. Mike Brown wasn't shot for being black and jaywalking. Oh, you killed him for being black and jaywalking. That's not true. He was killed because he was warned twice for jaywalking. And the second time he was warning, he beat up a cop, tried to grab the cop's gun. And the proof is there were microfibers on his hand from the gun when he was doing the autopsy. He was shot at once, missed, kept fighting the cop. You would think a gunshot would cause him to back up. Second shot hits him. He runs away. The officer, it's his duty to continue to chase him. He is now a danger to cops and the community. He stops, turns around, charges back at the officer. This officer had every reason to believe, based on his encounter with him at the car, with a, forget the color of his skin, with a six foot four, 300-pound man who was young and came at him. He had every reason to believe that his life was in danger, and that's what happened. But what our active detractors do, they take that and lie. He was killed for being black and jaywalking. And you repeat that over and over again. And the layman who, it's not that society is not intelligent, you know, whether it's the white community, black community. I think we're more intelligent than we've ever been, uh, you know. But the problem is we're more, we're not as intellectually diligent as we've ever been. I think we're the most intellectually lazy across the country, across the board, than we've ever been in history. And we're tagline, headline thinkers. And that's all we want to know. That's all we want to know. And based on that framework, you, we are where we are right now. We are where we are right now. Well, I didn't intend for this to turn into the Candace Owen show, but here we are. Yeah, this got, this got different. <laughs> yeah, <they are. laughs> that's Sorry, right. sorry about that. <laughs> no, it's all good, brother. It's all good. But uh, love Candace. But... Um, um, have you been on her show? Is that uh, on the radar? No, no. I like. I, I agree with her on some things. Others, I don't. You know, I think her delivery is kind of tough to swallow. But for the most part, she's, she's still being young. honest. She's being she's being very honest, uh, and you can't really argue the facts that she's bringing. So I respect her for that. Uh, I hate that she's receiving so much hatred uh, uh, for being so strong. But unfortunately, the other side is coming stronger. So you, she has to try to be a stronger win. But I do respect her. I do respect her, but I haven't been on her show uh, or anything else like that. But she's a she's a very smart, smart, smart person. I think that'd be a good conversation. But uh, now for the reason I had you on the show. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> we kind of we kind of veered off to the right there. <laughs> That's all right. That's all right, man. Um, so I really wanted to dig in a little bit about your experience at Skid Row because. I've got a soft spot for um, the homeless and, and the disenfranchised and, and whatnot. And I really believe that any of the um, dark side of policing that for whatever reason, still uh, those that in society in general, that look down on, on the people that are the most vulnerable, that uh, uh, sneer at the drug addicts or they, um, turn their nose up at the homeless. Uh, it's, I was hoping to build a bridge today because the military community is a heavily traumatized community. The policing community is a heavily traumatized, uh, uh community and the real, and there's a hell of a lot of alcoholism. And the reason that there's a hell of a lot of alcoholism is because you're dealing with trauma. And we are a tr we are traumatized communities, and uh, and and the, but when a, a cop's drinking too much uh, or on substance, it's like well, you've seen some shit, you know. So maybe we'll have some empathy for that cop. And then that those those same people look at the homeless people, and they don't see the same thing. But I see the same thing. I don't see a difference. I look at the homeless, I see a traumatized community, 
no different than policing, except their trauma was too freaking much. And, and, and this is the result of it. Um, how do you see uh, the people of Skid Row and where were you mentally when you first got there? And what did you learn from them? This is what I see uh, 23 years working with the people of Skid Row. And I want America to hear me and hear me clearly because I'm tired of the de dehumanization of cops, but I'm also tired of the dehumanization of the people that I serve in the homeless community. Uh, th there are four kinds of people in Skid Row like anywhere else in the United States of America. And that's why I'm there. I'm there for the first three groups of people. Okay, that's why I won't quit. The first group are good people. There are good people in Skid Row who are wonderful human beings. They're just disenfranchised and they're just trying to get back on their feet. They're staying at the missions, trying to get their life together. They're in low-income supportive housing uh, because they can't afford any anywhere else. And, and where I work is the only show in town that'll take them, okay? Then you have the second group, which are good people who do bad things. These are your drug addicts. And why do I say that? Because when there's an environment conducive to change for them, and we gave that to them from 2005 to 2010, we discovered they're more than just drug addicts. These folks were educated. They're people of faith. They had careers. They had, they were athletes. They were actors. They were all these incredible things, you know. Uh, and, and But when they started smoking drugs, like I told you, they fell from that low rung on the ladder. And, of course, that same person you may see in a video hugging and kissing me on the cheek, because they're disenfranchised, they'll walk around the corner and bust somebody's head open to the white meat to get what they need. Because you can't separate addiction from crime. And that's unfortunately what these politicians and idea idealists keep trying to say, but it's false. And that's why we're losing this battle. Uh, hold on, it just went dark. No, I Can see you hear me? Yeah, yeah, I see you. I hear you. Yes, yeah, it's going low. I think it's running out of batteries. But let me try to make this quick. Uh, so <laughs> we're gonna try to we're gonna try to fix this right now. We're getting a cord for you right now. All right. Okay. But so that's the second group, you know, then you have the third group of individuals who are criminals who just got out of prison, who may want to turn their life around, but, but since they don't have an environment conducive to change, guess what? You know, uh, they end up staying on the bad side too. And then the last group are the actual career criminals. That's their job. That's why we call them career criminals who are hundreds and hundreds of gang members who descend upon Skid Row to prey on the weak and the addicted. Now, here's what's different about Skid Row juxtaposed to anywhere else in the United States of America, okay? Skid Row is a tight, tight 50-block radius. If you've, ever been to, if you've ever been to Washington, D.C., you'll notice, there we go, you'll notice that, uh, you know, those streets are very tight. So pictures, that, that's what Skid Row looks like, okay? Very tight, short 50 blocks. And, and because of that, it attracts two groups of people, people who, need, who are in need of help, but also the criminal element who preys upon them. And this is what it looks like juxtaposed to anywhere in the United States of America. For the good people, they have to look the other way when they see violence, even if it's committed against them because they have to live there. They're afraid. This is a fact. For the drug addict, the good person who does bad things, once again, how do you get clean when the temptation to fail is too great? How do you get clean when a drug dealer or alcohol vendor is out of, off just outside of your Alcoholics Anonymous program or NA program? How do you get clean when you're inside of your low-income supportive uh, uh, housing unit and the drug dealer has taken over half of the hotel? That's impossible. It's impossible to do. For the third group, the ex-convict, he has a choice to make. I'm only getting $221 a month for, from GR, and I'm looking out of my window at the wine garden. I'm seeing a drug dealer making $1,000 a day. I need to go find quote unquote work. If you ever hear the term work in Skid Row, that is not a good thing, okay? So they go extort, they beat up people, uh, they sell drugs and they do that to survive. And that's why they recid recidivize so fast. Tell me if this makes sense to you. You're a parole agent and you got to give up your parolee who's fresh out of prison and you tell them, okay, I'm going to send you to Skid Row. Now stay out of trouble, young man. <laughs> you just sent them into trouble. That's how messed up the system is. And then the last group, the career criminals, the Crips, the Bloods, the 18th Streeters, who descend upon Skid Row, who prey upon the people, keep them on an endless spiral of addiction, and then run to advocates to tie our hands and make us look like the bad guys for trying to stop it by any legal means necessary. And that's how you got the term, oh, the police are criminalizing the homeless. That was not what was happening over there. We were trying to create an environment conducive to change so that the influence of those service providers can be stronger than that of a criminal element because we cared. We were tired of people dying in one year uh, 2005, non-homicidal deaths, we had about 123 people die from non-homicidal deaths. I'm talking about overdosings, uh, you know, just uh, bad heart conditions from long-term drug use, finding dead bodies in the street. You're talking about, about 18 bodies. 
from our initiative, we reduced that to uh, from 123 to about 63, which is fantastic. And we only found five dead in the street. So don't tell me that what we were doing wasn't effective. Even homicides. I remember in 2002, we had 54 homicides in downtown LA alone. That's a lot. Yeah, but crime was high back then. And it's Skid Road accounted for 35% of those crimes. Through our initiative to try to clean it up between 2005 and 2010, we looked at our 2009 data and we only had three in Skid Row. So once again, I always tell people, you may not like what I do. You may not like what it looks. It's not sexy. I get it. If you want sexy, call the fire department. They look good on calendars. They climb trees. They rescue kittens. No, I'm just playing. The fire department is fantastic guys. I love those guys. But, but really, we don't get paid to uh, go out and deal with the sexy stuff. We have to deal with the systemic failures. And when we have support, we can deal with those systemic failures pretty effectively. And we did that. We brought a lot of safety to that area. Now, because of lawsuits, injunctions, uh, people changing laws that are now making it easier for criminals to reoffend, basically everything's been decriminalized. You know, it's only a misdemeanor on paper now. You know, you literally have to kill somebody to get sent back to prison. Now we're back to 1997 and worse. Uh, the only reason why the murders aren't up is because we still have 50 incredible officers who are walking the streets or trying to be visible. But if it wasn't for that, those people would, it would be a bloodbath down there. Uh, and we're, we're getting there. But that's the reality of Skid Row right now. It seems like the whole system, Dion, is in a conflict of interest um, position. Uh, the judge is in a conflict of interest position because if he doesn't uh, throw people in, in jail, well, what's his job about then? You know, uh, if, if you're not creating the repeat crimes by not rehabilitating people, by not helping them, by not, uh, th then these uh, these people that are the decision makers, their job is, if their volume goes down, their job is in jeopardy. So uh, the, the judges, the um, uh, the prosecution lawyers, uh, all of them, they kind of depend on being a dick. Like mm. that's like if they're not a dick, their job is. Um, it, it, do you see it that way at all? Like the the system is sort of self perpetuating uh, in in a bad yeah. way in a negative feedback loop. It is. It is. Um, uh, but here's how I see it. You know, the term crime control is now a dirty word, and. Uh, I never saw it as a dirty word. There's two sides that are very important when it comes to crime fighting, and that's crime, uh, crime control and due process. And I'll agree that when either side gets too much power, they have disastrous consequences in their own special ways. If crime control has too much power, there's this overzealousness to just incarcerate everybody just to keep them out of sight, out of mind, right? And uh, that can do damage, that can do damage. And then you have the due process side, which says, let's take our hands off these people, let them do whatever they wanna do because we wanna make up for history. And as a result, places like Skid Row become these dangerous, you know, for lack of a better term, asylums without walls or concentration camp without walls where people are killing each other and dying at a high rate. I believe in crime control, not crime stop, because there's no such thing as crime stop. I wish we could snap our fingers and people would stop committing crimes and killing each other and raping each other and sell drugs to each, drugs to each other in front of drug programs. That's never going to happen. But I do believe we should be allowed to control crime and hold criminals accountable to a degree, uh, you know, for this purpose and this personal loan. purpose alone. When I take a dangerous, violent criminal off the street or a drug dealer off the street who's preying on the people and you can't separate violence from the drug sales, I'm doing it with hopes that if it says they're supposed to do three years, I want them to do all three years. Why? Because I want to give the community three years of relief from that individual. It's not because I hate him. It's not because I want to see harm come to his life. But I want to. But when you create this revolving door for certain criminals, violent offenders, drug dealers, you send the message that it's okay for them. Did you give them permission to hurt the community? So there has to be common sense reinstated there. You know, I'll give you an example of. Uh, of, uh, of, a, of a couple of cases. I remember there was this drug dealer <clears throat> been trying to put him away for years. Finally, we got him, right? How do we get him? He sees one of his friends get into a fight with a guy one-on-one, -on -one, the way it's supposed to be, right? Knocks out the victim. Victim is sitting down on the against the wall, unconscious, trying to gain consciousness. And while he was asleep, the friend of the guy who knocked him out takes a knife and carves his chest. That man was arrested and was supposed to do what, 10 years? He got out in a year and a half. How is that helping the community? Another violent individual who blew in from New Orleans after the hurricane. He joined the blood gang down there 
And basically he started taxing the people for living in tents. That happens. People don't know that. But when people set up tents in Skid Row, the gangs in the area tax them their entire social security check to live. And they say, you either sell our drugs, let our women sell their bodies in there, or you give us your entire check or we kill you. They don't have any place else to go. So they agree to do it. So this one guy walks up on these people who are in the tent and they say, where's my money? And this couple, this elderly couple said, uh, we don't want to pay it. We don't have it. We're not going to pay it. So he says, okay, I'm going to set your tent on fire. He gets on his bike, rides over to a gas station and fills up a liter, two liter bottle of water with gasoline. He comes back and he's about to set their tent on fire, but two bicycle cops were happened to be in the area. And that's the only thing that stopped him. The victims came to me and they were terrified because I was the only officer that they trusted because I built a relationship. Not that my partners were bad guys. They just trusted me. I took a report. He was arrested. And when he was arrested, he admitted it. He said, yeah, I went to the gas station. Yeah, I filled it up with gasoline, but I wasn't really going to burn them up. I was just going to scare them. doesn't matter. You're guilty, sir. He was supposed to do five years. He got out in, what, a year. And when I saw him get a day, he got out. He rented a BMW and dropped off a bunch of dope uh, in Skid Row. So when you don't hold criminals accountable, okay, when you don't do that, guess what? You're still failing people of color in marginalized communities. So you have to bring back a balance of both. Now, for those who are engaged in the minor crime, this is my solution. We engaged in a program called SOS, which is called Streets of Services, where if we arrested somebody in Skid Row, whether they were homeless or whatever, and we recognized that when they committed a crime, they didn't kill anybody, it was a minor crime. What we did was we put them in a 21-day drug pro a program that suited their needs, whether it was mental health, drug addiction, alcohol addiction, or chronic homelessness. We put you in our 21-day program. And if you completed that program, guess what? We ripped up the charges if it never existed. I thought that was a beautiful program because it held people accountable. And at the same time, we made sure we made them get mandatory help that they were not going to seek on their own. And it actually started to work. In one year, we had 2,225 individuals sign up for the program. Now, of course, only about 30% of them actually came through and completed the program. But 30% is a pretty good chunk. Uh, the others, when they absconded, we put out warrants for their arrest and we brought them back and tried it again. But what we were noticing was with that 30%, they went home, they joined a program, they got housed, they were doing better. So yes, law enforcement has its place if it's done smartly with, with outreach in mind, with programs in mind. You're not just, not just incarcerating people, but incarcerating them or arresting them to make them go get the help that they wouldn't seek on their own. Now, the reason why we're seeing the disasters we're seeing in San Francisco, LA, Seattle, Portland right now is because they won't adopt that approach. The approach is just let the homeless do whatever they wanna do. They'll get better on their own. This whole foolish ideology is destroying this country, some of the biggest cities in this country and uh, you need crime control. You need crime control. What one thing, and this is a tough one to ask, but what one thing if people understood, would give them more compassion for uh, the people that are homeless and, and the drug addicted? Mm -hmm. Well, that the people of Skid Row weren't born in Skid Row. See, that's the problem. For years, there was this stigma that if you were in Skid Row, somehow you were born there, you're a bum, you messed up your life. And, you know, uh, I know a guy who started smoking crack cocaine when he saw his daughter was killed with a 12 gauge shotgun in South LA. Okay. And his issue was trauma. Now, he's not a bad guy. He doesn't rob, steal. He collects cans. That's how he makes his money to, to buy drugs. He's one of the exceptions who don't, who, who don't engage in that. But when he saw his daughter get killed, uh, and this is a man who had a business, he lost it. He couldn't, get, he, couldn't, he couldn't fix himself. So he ended up smoking crack, and then there was that quick decline. The people of Skid Row weren't born in Skid Row. They're loved by somebody. You know, as a matter of fact, in my estimation, uh, you know, about 35% of the people in Skid Row aren't even homeless. They're just down there because they burn their bridges somewhere and they can't go home until they get right. You know, I know that. That's that, In my opinion, that's a fact uh, based on what I've seen in 23 years. So if I tell you that there's drug addicts and, you know, there's mentally ill people who have been thrown away by society, which is another huge issue in Skid Row. That is the, uh, another big issue that needs to change. The laws need to change as it relates to mental illness. Uh, uh, if people understood that, you know, they would understand now from a truth-based foundation what to do to fix the problem. But what we have now is the media and activists 
who say we want to take the stigma off homelessness because if we if there's stigma there people won't want to help them okay i hear you but you've taken the stigma off so now people outside of places like skid row think that skid row is a bunch of poor homeless people who lost their apartment who are shaking for change and that's not true either i believe we can tell the truth about skid row if we tell the truth about skid row to college students the future great minds of america to politicians if they get out of their cubicles and actually walk these streets they'll see the need they'll see exactly what i'm saying and they'll realize that i'm probably the only one right now telling the truth because i'm not political i don't have a dog in a fight uh, i'm not part of the homeless industrial complex i'm not you know i'm not making any money off of it i'm just telling you what i see so if you look at it from a truth-based foundation you will be able to figure out ways to solve it based on that like mental illness per se and I'm, i got about a couple minutes and i gotta go but <laughs> mental illness what is America's solution to, uh, quote unquote, helping the mental, mentally ill? Closing down the asylums, kicking them out into the streets in the name of civil liberty, sprinkling pills on them and telling them, okay, you're free, take your medicines and uh, take two pills and call me in the morning. It failed. Many of those individuals fell into the loving arms of family members and people who cared about them, but many got dumped into or wandered into places like Skid Row because no place else wanted them. Let me tell you what happens to these individuals when they get down there. They take their prescribed medication and they sell it and get rid of it because they don't like taking their prescribed medication. Why? Because it makes them feel down and lethargic. And in Skid Row, you have to be turned up, as my son says, because it's turned up bill. So what they do is they sell their prescribed medication and then start self-medicating on crack cocaine, methamphetamine, spice, and yes, even marijuana. It may not affect you or me. What happened? Yeah, your, your, your uh, perspective on the camera just changed. You're sideways. And you're frozen. Uh-oh. We are experiencing technical difficulties. Dion Joseph is on the line, and his picture just froze. So I'm not sure if uh, we're going to be able to bring him back or not here. Just going to give it a few moments. <laughs> oh, goodness. All right. Uh, Dion, if you can hear me, stay on the line, and I'm going to close out. You're listening to Operation Tango Romeo the Trauma Recovery Podcast for veterans, first responders, and their families. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. Now, I've got a favor to ask you. And I know everybody asks for the same favor, but it's really, really important. If you can help, do your little bit by going to Apple Podcasts, leaving a rating and a comment. That would be awesome. Also, on your favorite podcast platform, whether that be Spotify, Anchor, Google Podcasts, or whatever floats your boat and blows your hair back, please click follow. And if there's an option there for rating, please do so. And this is why. Every time you click like, leave a rating, leave a comment, what happens is that it makes it easier for other people to find this podcast. The help that you can't find doesn't help at all. So help other people find this so that they can help themselves. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And as always, share, share like the sugar bear because sharing is caring. Mm-hmm.